5%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jenny Lam and my co-presenter this morning is Janice Wong. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. On, once, on today's Back Chat, we're talking about China's space program. The Shenzhou 16 spacecraft has successfully returned to Earth yesterday after spending five months aboard the Tiangong space station. During their time in space, a three-member crew, which included the first civilian, going up on the Shenzhou mission, carried out a total of 70 scientific experiments, including cultivating fresh vegetables on board the Tiangong Space Station. They also carried out a nearly eight-hour-long spacewalk, delivered a live interactive lecture, which notably involved lighting a match in the space station. So what is the significance of this latest space mission that's been described as a complete success? What role can Hong Kong play in the mainland's space development? And at 9.40, we'll be talking about climate change with a senior representative from the United Nations. So let us know what you think. You can leave us a message here on our Facebook page page, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or call us on 233-88266. And joining us this morning, we have Professor Greg Lee. Uh, he's the Executive Director and President of Orion Astropreneur Space Academy. Uh, on the line with us this morning is Professor Quentin Parker. He's a Director of the Laboratory for Space Research at the Department of Physics at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, Professor Quentin Parker, uh, what is the significance of this latest Shenzhou 16 mission? Uh, first uh, correction, um, at the Faculty of Science at the University of Hong Kong, I'm not in the Department of Physics, but anyway, uh, never mind. Uh, the significance of this mission is it's just basically more of the same one-on-one -on -one following success after success with their uh, space program. So it's not just about the Chinese space station and its tremendous success. We're up to mission 17 of Shenzhou now with the new astronauts having just arrived. But it's the everything else that's happening around it. You know, next year, there's going to be a major telescope going up in similar orbit to the space station, which will be able to dock with the space station. It's like the Hubble Space, Hubble space Telescope, except with a field of view 300 times larger. Then you've got the missions to the moon, all the Changi series of missions. You've got the Huron rover on Mars. You've got the plans for a moon base. And so on multiple fronts, the Chinese space station, I mean, Chinese space programs actually going gangbusters. Right. So, so with all these uh, developments you're talking about uh, surrounding uh, Shenzhou uh, 16 or 17, um, how would you describe the progress of uh, the mainland space program right now? It seems to be uh, developing pretty fast. Yes, I mean, I'm hearing uh, still uh, talk of, oh, China is still emerging as a space power, but I disagree. It has emerged as a major space power already. It's the only the third country ever to uh, get moon rock back from the moon with uh, the Changi 5 mission, a sample return mission, totally automated, brought back uh, 1.8 kilograms of moon rock. Uh, Russia brought back a few hundred grams only over three missions in the 70s. And, of course, we had the... Um, uh, we had the um, uh, NASA Apollo program with manned missions to the moon that brought back quite a lot of moon rock. But uh, but apart from that, um, you know, China is the third power to be able to do that. It's the only um, power that's actually landed on the uh, far side of the moon, which we can't see from the Earth. A very successful mission that was too. Very complicated work first time. So that combined with their plans and their ongoing success 
demonstrates, I think, to anyone that's paying attention that the Chinese space program has actually emerged as a major player, you know, up there with, with America and, and Russia and the Europeans. Uh, Professor Greg Lee, hmm. now you're with Orion Astropreneur Space Academy, which is based here in Hong Kong, and your mission is to encourage partly more Hong Kong participation in the space program. Can you tell us a bit more about that? <laughs> Definitely so. The, the aim of uh, OESA is mainly to help Hong Kong see the bigger world, that this, in fact, new space economy has arrived in many parts of the world, and why not Hong Kong? And part of it is, is ignorance, part of it is, is uh, disillusion. Many people, when they think of new space, they think of the, you know, the rockets or the, the, the very extreme distance, the hard science that people don't want to understand. Um, but new space is very much about the business part of it, you know, very much about data, sensors, uh, communication, those things that can be grounded and can build on what Hong Kong's economy is all about. But because we don't understand that, that linkage, we we don't not yet there. Now the problem is the whole world is not waiting, and we're very far behind. And so, for young people who might be listening, what can they be doing right now to be part of this program? Well, that's a good question because the aim we're doing this is actually for the young people. You know, they have to have hope, and these are very bright, super smart students. And when they ask common sense questions, <clears throat> example like, why is that other countries are building cubesats and we don't even know what it is? We don't even cover this in school. Why is that grade school in the U.S. can build CubeSat and they can put that on a NASA rocket? Now, why is that we don't even understand or perceive to understand this new world? And part of the work that we try to do, in, including with uh, the laboratory space research, Professor Parker, is to get them standing on higher mountains to see, you know, to see further, to see that the world is actually much bigger than themselves. So uh, are we talking about mainly science students in the future or, or other people can participate too? They're definitely other people. Um, because when you go up, <laughs> really up, uh, far as well, the things that come into mind is how, how do you leverage that? What do you use? What sort of data do you need? Uh, a smart city needs a lot of sensors, for example, right? And things like that, you don't need a very high degree to get into the field of analytics or geospatial sciences. Um, all that, what we're trying to do is help the kids understand when they enter in this realm of possibilities, there, there is opens up tremendously. Yeah, you, you, you're really basically talking about a future space economy. Mm. Yeah. What, what, what is a space economy? Can you elaborate? The new space economy, the easiest to understand for the audience is Elon Musk, right? So he said, okay, what is this thing? Uh, why is it possible? I, I think there are five core reasons. One of them is the possibility that it used to cost a huge amount of money to send anything up into space. It used to cost 10,000 US dollars to send one kilogram. Now it's down to 1,000, and potentially with China's involvement, could even drop to $200. So for the price of an iPhone, you can get something up in the sky. Okay, that's the first um, disruption that is already here. The second disruption is very much data. You have to think that AI is based on a continuous stream of data, correct? Mm -hmm. Now, where it provides you the most data? Your iPhone and also satellites. Without any understanding of satellites, how can any city become very smart? So, now the satellites today, this is the second disruption, by the way. The third one is actually um, the fact that the LDO, lower Earth orbit, 
So when we talk about satellites, we're not talking about the bus size satellites. You know, those used to go on a much higher orbit. Now these are very low orbits, like the Starlink, and they provide huge amount of connectivity. So connectivity is a key word. And kids can do it today. Okay, so, so why can't Hong Kong kids do it? Or kids in Greater Bay? How can they not come to understand the possibility of it? Now, once you get the satellite up there, the third is coming, bringing the information downwards. So humans are aware of climate change because of satellites. So satellites tells us so much about ourselves and our world, and it opens tremendous amount of possibilities. So learning about satellites and the data that comes down, the possibility you can collect, that also changes your, your perspective. Now, way in the past, you know, 1969, probably many years ago, before some of you were born, um, you know, Sputnik was up there, and it gave us a different view of the world. That's where it all began, right? But now, with all this data coming down, we see a different world. We can actually see, wow, there's a typhoon coming, you know, with probably 30 minutes notice. You, you can actually have much more information that you, that you can uh, have before, and that provides very interactive uh, space uh, intelligence that you haven't had before. Right. So, Professor Lee, with, uh, when we talk about the space economy, mm. how do you think Hong Kong should uh, take advantage of uh, the, the rapid space development program on the mainland? Um, from what you're talking about, I mean, should the government uh, focus more on um, educating uh, kids in Hong Kong about all of this? Uh, well, for, for Oasis is three years old, and in three years we found that is much more than the kids. The teachers have to know. Um, China is already, as you have said before, and Professor Quinton Parker alluded earlier, China is going gangbusters, you know, in the space economy. So they look into Hong Kong. So what can you guys do to help? Um, now they can provide a hot engine, right? But we can actually provide the, the business and the entrepreneur. So we call it entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneur in space. You have to provide connectivity. And Hong Kong used to be great at that, but somehow over the years we lost it. So we need to bring that back. But maybe the context is about space. So it needs learning from the kids. It also, teachers need to be educated. Parents, especially, they need to open up. Because look, in, in a few years time, 18 months, there'll be at least five moon bases on the moon, okay? Uh, one person up there is gonna need thousands on the ground to help them. That's the, what a new industry is. Okay, uh, Professor Parker at Hong Kong University, how are you encouraging the students to take part in this endeavor? I'll just, uh, just quickly before we get on to that, I'll just allude to what Greg was saying, which is a very important uh, piece of information about why what's, what's Hong Kong doing. I've just come back from the city of Xiamen, which is uh, a few hundred kilometers north of here. It's an island too, like Hong Kong, similar population to Hong Kong, very rich city, a forward-looking, and uh, you know, it's got a, a very um, developing uh, new space economy already and the LSR was invited up uh, you know and other companies to look into how we can assist with their program they've already got a company that's putting up satellites of looking down at the city of Charmaine because they've already got a very important when the Institute for Urban Environment looking at um, you know smart city infrastructure what's Hong Kong doing it's not doing this and yet there's so many corollaries and parallels with the city of Charmaine not far from here we need to be doing something similar to that but okay getting back to your main question about about uh, how do I encourage students? Well, um, what the LSR did along with OASA and uh, Hong Kong U Academy for the Talented is we developed something called uh, the BEST program, Business Economy for Space Technology. It was a CubeSat program in 23 high schools in Hong Kong uh, just over a year ago, and that was extremely successful. We're looking at trying to run it again. So 
that's getting the early engagement from kids in STEM. Now, the key thing about that program, it was interdisciplinary. So each team working in their schools on, on, on CubeSat prototyping ideas had a designer, a computer specialist, a project scientist, and an astropreneur. Somebody, you know, had a commercial eye on what they're trying to do as well. So this is what we're trying to do at the lower level to get kids in high schools engaged in STEM through new space ideas and CubeSats and then get them to join into our top universities and take our STEM programs. So that's one thing we're doing. Of course, as another, as another thing we're doing as the LSR, we have an extremely proactive internship program, which brought in this year another record of 20, nearly 25 students. I think it's 24 students came in, undergraduates from here and overseas, but also high school students at the top end. From, from Hong Kong and again overseas. So we've had this program for a few years now. It's been growing um, linearly for the last five years, but it's, you know, it's a small scale thing. We're only looking at 20 odd students at a time, but this needs to go out to more uh, enterprises, more universities like CUHK, HQST, PolyU, getting these internship programs going for young, bright kids, as, as Professor Lee said, and get them engaged and into uh, this area. Can, can you elaborate a little bit more for young people who might be listening? When they get into these programs, what can they actually look forward to doing? Are they going to travel to, to the uh, launch site uh, on the mainland to, to see stuff? What kind of training are they getting? Yeah, that's a very good question. There's all sorts of things that we can do, and that is certainly part of it, to give them the opportunity perhaps to, to see launches um, in, in the mainland and also just south of here in Hainan Island, actually, there's a major launch site. But next to it being built right now is also a commercial launch site for commercial rocket launches under China. So that's a new development, and it's showing also where the thinking is going in the mainland towards commercialization, towards new space economy. You know, and there was an article I wrote that came out in... Um, uh, a South China Morning Post the other day about the um, uh, the uh, what Hong Kong should be doing or what it could do in the emerging space economy, but we're not doing yet. Uh, you know, and I think there was a, a, a guy Jolly who had another article about the same thing in in, in uh, Hong Kong Free Press. And so there's um, um, a lot of a uh, lot of activity uh, amongst us and like OASA. But you know, we need people to be listening higher up and and to actually ap ap appreciate the opportunities which are there. You know, we know there's opportunities there, but it's actually getting the government to recognise that and to actually do some policy shifts. What, what, what would you like? What policy them. shifts are you talking about? What would you like to see? I'd like to see, first of all, the first thing that you want is a green light from the government. A green light that basically says we're supporting this emerging sector. We're prepared to support it, and we have these various policies and programs that can do that, whether it's investments more in this area in our universities, where it's encouraging startups like at Cyberport, uh, you know, and, and uh, the Science Centre. And so all, there's lots of things that can be done. And, you know, um, OASA and the LSR and others have talked about these things. In fact, on October the 20th, we had a major conference in Hong Kong, the first of its kind, not just in Hong Kong, but in the entire GBA, on the new space economy. You know, we had the president of the PolyU there. We had members from LEGCO there. We had, we had a Taikonaut there, and we had an, a NASA-trained astronaut present. And so all of these things were happening in one day, tremendously successful meeting, and I'm hoping that that will make a difference, that people will start to listen and appreciate, you know, that the future and, and you know, the new space economy will be worth probably around one trillion US dollars by the end of this decade. And there's no reason why Hong Kong cannot get a slice of the action 
What's our expertise? Our expertise are not so much yet in, you know, in high-end manufacturing for, for aerospace, although we have companies like uh, Silkwave and, and, and Aerospace setting up here and, of course, Hong Kong Aerospace Technology Group and, and others uh, and Phalon, but companies like that. But it's, you know, it's what, what we can do to attract investment. And Hong Kong has a tremendous regulatory framework, internationally respected compliance and IPO infrastructure, you know, and smart fintech. So it can act as a major vehicle for investment in the new space economy as well. I mean, that's where I see Hong Kong as tremendous strengths. Right. So you you want to encourage investment. Now, of course, uh, the, the Shenzhou 16 carried uh, the first com- non, non-scientist, uh, mm. well, actually was a university <laughs> professor, uh, <laughs> a, a <laughs> civilian, a civilian. Civilian, yes. <laughs> yes. So do you see China g- going into a sort of commercial, um, you know, space program in which People can just uh, fly up there, you know, just just like uh, for SpaceX. Uh, well, I'm Jeff Bezos and Sir Richard Branson, of course. So these are the players, the major players in the West. I mean, there has been talk of uh, similar things happening in China and uh, space hotels and all these kinds of ideas for the future. And I think those, those things will come. We're looking at, you know, rockets that are going to be able to come back down to Earth and, and be reused again and again, like Elon Musk has done. And so there's all these uh, kind of things that are out there and happening. There's 500 new startups in the space economy happened just recently in China. Many of them will fail. Some will succeed and develop. And so, you know, it's, it's it's, a, it's kind of a very we're in a period of rapid change in the entire new space ecosystem and you know and rapid with rapid change come comes opportunities now just going back to the civilian aspect you know we have this uh, this professor uh, from uh, Beihang University Gui Hao Cho that uh, was a very first civilian now don't forget that Hong Kong Macau have been offered the opportunity for have Taikonauts and, you know, they've gone through, there's a tremendous number, about 200 applicants have gone through various selection processes at the final stages now. Those people are all civilians. They're not from a military background. They're scientists, engineers, you know, and they'll be payload specialists. So the payload specialists, like the one that, that just came down, Gui Hao Cho, civilian, but with the technical expertise and the scientific knowledge and training to be able to be very useful on board as a payload specialist. Because what is the Chinese space station, apart from being a tremendous national endeavor? It's a huge laboratory. It's basically a laboratory for doing experiments in microgravity and also as a platform for doing observations outside. Various sensors and telescopes that you can put there, including the Xuntian Space Telescope will be launched next year. So I think, you know, it's clear that there will be more and more civilians going up on board, including international ones, not from China. Okay, t- tell us a little bit more about these experiments. So, so we learned that apparently they carried uh, some, some plants, some vegetables uh, de- developed <laughs> by Chinese University. Tomatoes. Yeah, tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what are some of the significant breakthrough in terms of uh, scientific experiments on board the Tiangong? Well, look, as you mentioned at the very beginning, there is over 70 different experiments in a whole range of areas from aerospace medicine, life ecology, uh, biotechnology, material sciences, fluid physics, fluid mechanics, aerospace tech, you know, all kinds of things were involved. So, you know, it's a multi-platform environment. So you can do all whatever the human brain can, can construct and perceive as an experiment that could benefit from microgravity then that's what they're going to try and do. And so, you know, they've had UN calls to countries around the world to collaborate with China and put uh, experiments on the Chinese space station. You know, you've got countries, Sweden and Switzerland and Vietnam and countries all around the world collaborating and putting up experiments on, on the Chinese space station and all these areas.
Right. The, the, the ones that have been highlighted recently, you know, they, I think they grew about three or four sets of lettuce uh, <laughs> on board and then comparing it under controlled conditions to the lettuce, the same, you know, lettuce that was being grown on Earth and then making comparisons to see how quickly they grew and to see if there are any, any mutations and all these kind of things. Because, of course, we're going to have to eat in space. If we <laughs> colonise space, we're going to have to live up there. Yeah. We need to be able to eat things. Uh, uh, may, may I jump in? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure, sure, Professor Lee. You know, the interesting thing of what Quinton just said is, you know, over 3,000 products have been invented because of this new environment. You think about it, IC became IC because of need in space. Even that cushion down on your, you know, your running shoes is because of space. So it created so much downstream invention and innovation. And we don't have that in Hong Kong. That's been dead. We need that to be reconnected. The, the question you ask, what can Hong Kong do? We need to reconnect because without its ecosystem, you know, a, a nascent ecosystem that's not connected, it doesn't grow. It needs to be connected. And the last, um, as Professor Parker alluded, um, last week, couple, <laughs> two, two weeks ago, we had a conference. And there we tried to link, ask, answer the questions, or ask the questions, so what? And where is it grounded? What, what is happening? Then we found out there are companies like YAS, YAS, who use uh, GPS to change the game for insurance. Right. So mm -hmm. these are changing the world. And we have even have the possibility of putting your database up in space. Now, in about 15 years or so, we're going to have solar energy coming down from space. But this is actually being put in design by the Chinese. So things are moving exponential speed and we need to understand, see what it is first. And that's very important. Understanding education comes key. But the second thing is connecting the dots. And there's so many things that disconnected that we see that we, we wanted to, to connect. I think part of it is getting people together, talking. When we first started three years ago, there was only, what, 10, 20 startup companies in the Greater Bay in this space. Now there's over 100. And these companies are moving quickly down, coming down to Hong Kong saying, OK, how can we get listed, for example? I can't mention names, but there's several companies already reaching out to us. Can you help us? I said, well, we're not in that business, but we can connect you. So. They need people can understand the dialogue, the language, right, and, and the background. Without that, where do you go? Because that is a new environment and we're falling behind exponentially. So we need to catch up exponentially. Well, of course, I mean, the government only explained yesterday that they have a whole idea uh, of uh, the northern metropolis, integration <laughs> with the Greater Bay Area. Do you see there's a sort of positive steps towards this so-called reconnection that you're talking about? Uh, it is a positive step. <laughs> okay, so it's a positive step. Uh, I, you know, we, we're a cyberport, and it's like things are cyberport. Things is there, but they're not really connected. Um, you know, you, you need a lot of new energy, and the energy needs fire. Where's the fire coming from? Fire comes because there's an opportunity in the market. Where is the market? Well, people can't, don't see the market yet here in this certain, you know, certain, certain industry. But many other people also see a market, and they're reaching out, but they can't find the place. To, to land themselves. So we're seeing kids that are leaving us because they can't find a space program. HSAT or Hong Kong ATG, they've been looking for a number of graduates from Hong Kong U. We can't graduate them enough. You know, they come and tell us we need more. We said it takes time to train really good ones. So, you know, that's, that's the problem. We're, we're, you know, we're not synced up properly. Quentin Parker, not synced up properly with the students? What, what can we do? Um, we, uh, the LSR, we, um, I lecture and we have other academics that, that lecture that have been in the Faculty of Engineering. 
the, the lecture in related areas. And I think uh, we, what we did have at Hong Kong U was an MSc uh, in space science, which uh, which was ran uh, for two versions. It's now uh, not running again this year, and uh, I'm not very happy about that. And I don't understand uh, why um, the physics department is not doing it. I think it's because they've got their own TPG, taught postgraduate program in physics up now, and I don't think they've got the bandwidth in, in their teaching. So I'm actually, uh, as an, in, we're in an independent cost center now in the Faculty of Science, the LSR, looking at trying to get that program into the faculty, perhaps in collaboration with the Faculty of Engineering, because I know there's interest there, and to, you know, and restart this program because it's really needed. I think you know the students that have come through that program, I'm employing some of them because they're just so good. Others have gone on to other industries and are doing well. So I think you know programs like this, uh, uh, you know, an MSc in, in space science within our city is is sorely needed. I think we need to, to get that relaunched. Uh, mm. That's my feeling on that. Apart from that. You know, you've got uh, it's a way of looking at the, the courses that we're currently offering and can we offer new ones and maybe put them together in a more coherent way that speaks to the future in this area. And I think we can look at that. I mean, we're not the only university, of course, there's other great universities in our in our great city. You know, we're like a tertiary education mini superpower, actually. When you look at the number of universities in the, in the top uh, 100, I think we've got uh, at least five. And, you know, that's an amazing thing for a city of, of less than eight million. Okay. So I think, you know, we've got strength there. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue after the news. Um, but now let's take a look at the weather. It's fine, dry during the day with a maximum temperature of around 29 degrees. Moderate east to northeasterly winds fresh offshore at first. And the outlook is for mainly fine weather in the next couple of days. Dry during the day. The temperature difference between day and night there will be relatively large. The current temperature outside is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity 65%. Haley Yip with the news. The government has announced that the financial secretary, Paul Chan, will lead Hong Kong's delegation to next month's APEC leaders meeting with scheduling issues keeping the chief executive away. The talks will take place in San Francisco from November the 15th to 17th. In a statement, the government said Hong Kong, China would continue to participate in APEC activities. The DAB says it's hoping to see more measures taken to make it easier for travelers from Hong Kong to enter the mainland. The party made the comment as mainland authorities confirmed that their COVID-era health declaration requirement would be abolished from today. And Israel has confirmed it carried out an airstrike that's leveled part of Gaza's biggest refugee camp in an area that the military had told people to leave for their safety. We'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. It's nice to go outside in good weather. But before taking part in outdoor activities, check the weather forecast on the My Observatory app. Thunderstorms can develop quickly. One moment it's sunny, the next it's thundery. It'll be even more dangerous if it comes with squalls. If a thunderstorm is approaching, stop the outdoor activities and find a safe shelter. Pay attention to weather forecasts, thunderstorm warnings, and announcements at the beach. Stay safe and enjoy the outdoors. The Chief Executive's 2023 policy address seeks to enhance the growth impetus of our economy and our well-being. We will press ahead with major infrastructure projects and different industries, attract top-notch enterprises and talent, develop Hong Kong as an international hub for higher education, and cultivate local technical professionals. We will promote childbearing and take good care of the elderly. We will protect our health and build our home together. A vibrant economy for a caring community. This policy address belongs to each of us.
everyone. Welcome back to Back Chat. This morning, we're talking about China's space program after the return of the Shenzhou 16 spacecraft. And of course, Shenzhou 17 has just gone up. We still with us um, on the line is Professor Greg Lee. He's with OASA, which is Orion Astropreneur Space Economy, and also Professor Quentin Parker from the University of Hong Kong. Greg Lee, what can we expect from Shenzhou 17 now that it's gone up? Good question. <clears throat> Professor Quinton Parker probably be a better respondent for that. But let me add, what, part of the reason why I keep going up is to, to, to test and experiment a number of different assumptions. And the, th the key thing that kids will need to learn is why is that important? I think the key word is reliability, because things in space have to work. Right? And that's something that many students here yet have yet to learn. And when they see this new uh, requirement, then they understand what, what does it mean to, to have a backup and a backup and a backup, the things that have to work. Why does it take so long for, for example, you know, the uh, James Webb telescope that taken, I don't know, what, $10 billion, a many years, 12 years to, to investigate? Because once you get up there, there's no way to fix it. And these are the things that provides employability, it provides further extension, scientific research, grounded scientific research back on the economy. So. In that sense, I see that going up, nothing to do with Hong Kong yet. And the question that I'm asking is, why can't we? Why can't we do more with that? Now, it's much more than getting kids up there and then looking at, uh, you know, rockets sticking off. It is opening up the mindsets, opening up the possibility of, of the sector here. There's okay. a lot of things you can build, for, including uh, fintech on top of this new space economy. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, Quentin Parker, what, what about Shenzhou 17? What do you expect? Well, it's uh, more of a saying, basically. I mean, I don't know if you know, it's now the youngest. I mean, they keep having new first. I don't know if that's a policy, but, you know, they had the first uh, civilian uh, Taikonaut, last mission, Shenzhou 16. This mission, they've got the um, the youngest ever crew uh, that's gone up there with uh, with uh, an average age of, uh, you know, it's, um, it's uh, 33, 35, and 48 is the oldest now, uh, the crew. Uh, pilot Tang Hongbo is 48. Uh, and so uh, that's interesting. Um, they also dock. I don't know if you know this. The Chinese can dock with their space station in, in, in about six and a half to seven hours. I mean, the International Space Station takes 16 to 18 hours to dock. So that's just uh, the advantage of uh, new technologies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and a new, it's a brand spanking new space station. So they're carrying on uh, with uh, developing uh, their space station and uh, carrying on doing all the experiments and all the new experiments that are going up there, you know, with the cargo vessels that bring up the new experiments to, to be uh, bedded into the space station. And of course, there's talk now of the space station growing in size. At the moment, it's about 20 odd percent the size of the International Space Station, but it'll going to be bigger. They're going to go from a T. Um, format configuration to a cross configuration by adding more modules. This is the thing about these space stations. They're like Lego. You can just keep adding new components. And if you want to grow it, you can. I think that's the plan. So the Chinese space station is going to carry on with more missions. The Shenzhou missions are on and on in the future. And, you know, as I said, next year, the Chinese space station telescope is going up. And now me as an astronomer, of course, I'm really excited about that mission. And I'm meant to be going to the mainland soon to talk to collaboration about trying to get in on the one particular program that's of interest to me in late stage stellar evolution, which is my area of research, collaborate with my Chinese colleagues and, and hopefully get data from that um, Chinese space station telescope in the near future. So that's all very exciting to me personally. Um, and I think that the, the, the progress and the overall program is very inspirational. To our young minds, our young students in our universities that look at what the motherland is doing 
look at the tremendous advances that are happening and thinking, wouldn't it be great to get involved? And of course, not everybody can become a tycoon, but you can get into the industry. You can get educated in the right area. You can participate, you know, with the technology, with the engineering, with the with the AI, with the machine learning, with the computing science, or, you know, with the science as well. All these things are, you know, we look at experiments aboard the space station. They cover most areas of science. You know, from, from yeah. 3D printing and manufacturing to biology and drug manufacture and all sorts of things. Yeah, you, you mentioned earlier the far side of the moon. The Chinese space yeah. program is the only one so far that managed to get there. What do you, what do you see in terms of development uh, as far as that's concerned? And what are some of the opportunities for young people? Well, I mean, they did it because when you go to the far side of the moon, you're able to sample uh, and, and to, to, to analyze and, and look at the regolith and, 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 and the geological structures on the far side of the moon in the way that no one's ever been done before. So the driving forces, you know, the science that you could do, you know, in order for it to work, you, because you can't see what's on the, on the far side of the moon from the Earth ever, you had to have another uh, satellite around the moon that went there with the major spacecraft, included the lander, to act as a, le a relay communication platform back to the Earth. So that's never been done in that way before either. So, you know, it's like whatever they try, they're succeeding. There haven't been any failures yet with these major space programs that China's been doing. There's been success after success after success. I mean, that's quite remarkable. You know, um, I mean, the Indians, are, admittedly, they put up a very uh, cost-effective uh, moon rover that was successful. Uh, the Japanese one crashed recently. That was a private enterprise one. You know, uh, you know, and Elon Musk's big rocket Starship um, uh, was, was anom anomalous launch and all the rockets didn't fire because it's got like 36 rockets or something on the end of that. But, you know, he's a commercial. They can afford to make mistakes. But state enterprises, state entities uh, that put work in space need to test things much more carefully. They can't afford failure because the world's eyes are looking at them, you know, and, and they haven't so far. Uh, and potentially there could be ice. Is that right, Quinton? Uh, well, yeah, it's not just ice hidden in some of the craters, rims, but actually they've, the Chinese mission, uh, and I think the also Indian ones, found that water is locked up in glass-like spherules, water. Vast amounts of water could be on the moon, trapped in particles that look like glass. In this question, how, you know, once you have water on the moon, of course you've got oxygen and you've got hydrogen. Right. Hydrogen is Professor. a fuel option to breathe. Professor Parker, we're going to have to wrap this up uh, fairly soon. But before we do that, I just want to, um, you know, go back to uh, you talking about the moon. I, I know back in May, Chinese uh, space officials, they announced uh, their intention to land astronauts on the moon by 2030. And now uh, with all this uh, rapid development, when do you think that can happen? Um, I think they'll happen in 2030 or thereabouts. Uh, because if you look at the track record, if they say they're going to do something these days, they tend to do it pretty much on spec. Excellent. Thank you very much, Professor Greg Lee and also Professor Quentin Parker on the Chinese Space Program. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Happy 95th birthday, RTHK. Thank you for 95 years of public broadcasting service. Keep up the amazing work. I'm Janice Wailan. 95 years of public service broadcasting. 95 years. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong Kong. With Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233 and have your say.
It is now 9.40 and we're moving to our next topic, which is about climate change. And joining us here in the studio is Andrew Harper. Now, he's a special advisor on climate action um, with the United Nations Refugees Agency. Now, I understand that you just came back from the Boal Forum where you discussed climate change. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, firstly, um, thank you very much. This is actually my first time in Hong Kong. So... uh, I, I took the opportunity of after um, coming from BOA to um, to also be here. Um, but in terms of the BOA Forum, what was important there was that um, not only is climate on the agenda because the, there's a saying which says you can't have development unless you have peace and you can't have peace unless you have development. And what we're seeing is that um, the impacts of climate change uh, is really sort of unravelling development and peace in many areas of the world. And why that's important for uh, an organisation like the UN Refugee Agency is if you don't have peace, then you've got conflict and then you've got displacement. And I think there's enough conflict and displacement in the world. And so we're there to discuss how we can reduce those drivers of, uh, of instability and fragility. So did anything concrete come out of the forum? Well, it's um, like I've been to a lot of fora um, and this is the, the first one that I've, I've been in, in China. And I thought what was important here was that um, they had it wasn't just politicians or climate scientists or humanitarians or security experts um, talking in their silos they actually had everyone together and so that sort of more of a holistic approach was was super important and it's an issue that um, the fact that they invited somebody from UNHCR, the refugee agency to talk about displacement that in itself was that was a major step because Often when you talk about development, it's development at any cost. It's not sustainable um, development. And I, I think the fact that they were bringing the discussion towards sustainability, uh, talking about human security rather than just like putting up fences and having gunboats and whatever, that's, that's critical for the future of, um, of the region. How, how is this part of the world, China, uh, doing in terms of uh, adapting to climate change or mitigating some of its effects? How are we doing compared with other parts of the world? Well, I think um, one of the reasons why I came to, to China was that um, it's just so important that China takes a, an increasing uh, leadership role, um, not only in, in terms of its own mitigation, but in terms of where it's, where it's working with its supply chain, uh, the types of products that it's producing, and also how it can also influence other governments around the world in order to be much more environmentally sensitive because, like, China is just huge. <laughs> and you really have to, like, again, it was my first visit there, so I was just taken back by the amount of potential and capacity, but also the um, strategic visioning of it, uh, because the, the, the impacts of climate change are not just contained with one border or one region. What happens in the industrial north will, will impact on Africa or Southeast Asia, as we see with cyclones and... Uh, rising sea levels. And so I think in, incrementally, um, many states are recognising it. Are they recognising it fast enough? No. Are they acting upon it fast enough? No. Um, if you look at countries in the world which are producing solar panels, China's a leader on that. Even electric, electric vehicles, China's a leader on that. Um, but what we probably need a little bit more support on is helping those communities which are most vulnerable adapt because unfortunately the impacts of climate change are almost irreversible now. The world is going to continue to get warmer. And while many populations 
can adjust and adapt because they're resilient. Like in, like in Hong Kong, I, I heard that you had the worst storms for 140 years. Like, you can survive that. But if that happens in a place like sub-Saharan Africa or in places like uh, Central Asia, they can't. Their, their resilience um, is eroded and that can then lead to increased fragility and displacement. Right. So we've just, uh, I mean, you just mentioned uh, how we're seeing more extreme weather conditions around the world. Um, does it mean we have failed in tackling uh, climate change? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> no, no, no doubt about that. Um, there's been agreement after agreements, and I'm sure there'll be another agreement at COP28, um, but it's easy to have agreements and strategies and policies and programs. It's much more difficult to um, ensure that those agreements are actually implemented. So there was a, uh, a 1.5, wasn't a target, it was a limit. Like the world cannot afford to go beyond 1.5 uh, degrees Celsius increase, um, and we're, we're on track for 2.8. Right. So if you saw that increase, those typhoons that have been coming through this area, and that's at 1.2. So are we, are we in trouble? Yep. Uh, where are we as far as uh, reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement is concerned? I mean, you know, the goal being to hold the increase in the global average temperature to well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial mm -hmm. Levels. Where are we in terms of achieving that? Um, we'd be fa like absolutely failing. There is there is no um, likelihood that we'll be able to hit that 1.5 degree limit, um, and even two degrees is looking quite questionable unless there is absolutely substantive change in culture, change in policies. Um, also, the the way um, economies are um, are basically set up, which is to exploit nature rather than preserve nature and to try and um, maximise um, almost the, the, the benefits of society here and now rather than sort of looking for the future. So, so people's sort of personal consumption is just out of, out of kilter with what the, the earth can sustain. Yeah, you with the UN Refugee Agency. Many people are victims, well, they become climate refugees. Right. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and well, what is being done. Well, the, uh, the the word climate refugees is interesting because generally when you talk about refugees, it's it's when somebody moves across a border due to conflict and persecution. Um, the vast majority of people who are impacted by disasters, um, natural hazards, um, are displaced in, initially within their own country, so they're internally displaced. What we're seeing is not so much, um, and we're not going to sort of sort of argue over the definition. But what we're particularly concerned about is that um, the impacts of climate change are exacerbating underlying vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities can lead to um, fragility, conflict, violence. And so it's not even whether we call them climate refugees, we're seeing actually inc a huge increase in the numbers of refugees because the countries that are, um, have got the least capacity to adapt to the climate emergency are the ones who are also basically now being embroiled in conflict. So 15 out of the 20 countries with the least capacity to adapt to climate change are either in conflict or very close to, um, to entering it. And these are the countries like Somalia, um, Afghanistan, Mozambique, um, Sudan, South Sudan, Niger. So this is where we're looking to um, not only try and build up the resilience of those populations that have already been displaced by conflict, but look to see how we can support uh, those vulnerable communities adapt, because if they can't adapt, then they're going to be made even more vulnerable and that's going to be 
probably leading to additional movements of populations across the across the borders and across the world. Yeah, we, we were talking about people whose farms can no longer be farmed mm. because because uh, it's, it's all dried up, or or they've been you know the the climate has changed, such as the storms make it impossible for them to live there. Um, so. At this forum, what are some of the goals and aspirations that you guys came up with in terms of mitigating some of those factors? Well, well, mitigation is generally about sort of reducing the level of emissions. Um, what, we're, what we've been trying to do is look at um, how can we have sustainable development. And so rather than sort of um, exploiting and raping and pillaging the land, um, how can we preserve the land? How can we be much more uh, climate smart in the way in which we have our agriculture? So th there's a lot of the, the answers are already out there. The solutions are out there. It's whether we wish to uh, implement them or not. So valuing water rather than seeing water as a, as a free resource. Uh, valuing the fertility of land. So rather than just having one crop which is continually harvested every year without sort of giving the chance the land to, uh, to recover. Um, use agroforestry, for instance, so that you have... Um, crops but then you also have uh, interspersed with shrubs and then trees and those and and having um, much more of a focus on locally led initiatives because a lot of the things that we're talking about is what communities and societies were doing 100 years ago or 200 years ago before we then started moving into mass agriculture or monoculture types of activities and the, and the use of um, like the the abundant use of fertilizers rather than sort of like looking for the quick options rather than for the sustainable nature-based solutions. Yeah, uh, so, so one of the keys here is carbon emission, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there is a carbon emission trading scheme. Um, the critics would say that it tends to reward the heaviest polluters. What do you think? I'm a humanitarian, <laughs> so that'll be my sort of get-out-of-jail-card-free. Uh, but um, it doesn't value, in my view, sufficiently the, um, the pollution. That's been emitted, and you're right. I think it's um, it's a it's a it's an easy option out for the the most heaviest polluters to um, say that they're doing the right thing when they're obviously not doing the right thing. When a lot of these agreements are made, um, and these are generally made at sort of like huge multilateral forums such as the uh, COPs um, conference of parties, then these agreements are generally consensus. And when you have a consensus, you, you basically come down to the lowest common denominator. And when we're talking about the future of the world, you can't afford the lowest common denominator. You need to be much more ambitious and you need to be sort of looking not about the here and now. We need to be looking about our children's future and the future of those people who don't have the capacity to defend themselves because they've been forced from their homes already because of war and conflict. So that's the that's what we have to be a little bit more passionate and enthusiastic about um, what we can do, like obviously the situation with the climate is is really worrying, but that should sort of almost trigger an even more um, stronger approach. Right. And when we uh, look at the impact of climate change, of course, uh, different places will be affected uh, in different ways. Um, but when it comes to Hong Kong, what, what do you think would be the greatest uh, threat for Hong Kong? Again, this is I've been here for less than 24 <laughs> hours, so I'm not the, not the expert here. Um, I think um, like Hong Kong is a is a trading um, hub. It's a it's a commercial hub. It's a it's a centre of um, of development for for the region, um, and you can't isolate the like the future of a of a of a of a region such as where Hong Kong is uh, from the outside world. 
And so if the world starts um, having a drop in um, growth, in development, um, if the economies start being challenged, then that will impact on a, um, a location such as, as, as Hong Kong. So there is um, there's no location in the world which is going to be immune from the impacts of, um, of climate change. But there's how it impacts will be different depending on the capacity. And like Hong Kong is a, is a relatively rich um, location, so your capacity. And it's one of the challenges because if people do not feel the impact um, of climate change, then they generally ignore it. And so this is where it's a little bit challenging for an organisation like UNHCR to come to like um, areas and countries and cities that are um, that are quite, I'd say, affluent. And sort of say, look, like there is, there's a lot of people out there which are hurting, and who have got nothing in order to protect themselves from the ravages of climate change. And this is where uh, one of the reasons why I'm also I go to these forums to sort of say, look, like you've got to realise that not everyone can go back to the homes and and have air conditioning and having a strong roof. Like you've got women and children who have been forced from their homes due to conflict, and all they've got to shelter under is is plastic sheeting. Yeah, you mentioned Afghanistan earlier. Where, where else in the world would you say they need the most help? Well, I've um, earlier this month I was in Somalia, um, and also in northern Kenya and Ethiopia, the Horn of Africa. Like they had five failed planting seasons, and so that has basically meant that everything which they relied upon to survive has died, and so that has meant that they've they've not only the conflict has forced them to move from Somalia to Ethiopia and Kenya. But um, the fact that they've got no assets um, has meant that they've had to move. Um, Bangladesh, um, we've obviously got a, like refugee camps there with, with the Bangladeshi government, which is eight to eight to nine hundred thousand people there. Um, whenever there's a cyclone building up in the Bay of Bengal, we are worried because if that hits um, Kutabulong camp, that's going to cause a lot of damage. Mozambique, um, Southern Africa. Um, almost everywhere, South America, Central America, there's there's no place which is immune. And it's just a situation of uh, what is the capacity of the most vulnerable people to to resist this. So name a country and I'll, I'll be able to say how badly they've been affected and how well they've been able to cope. Yeah. Uh we all know that the temperature is going up partly because of the continuous use of fossil fuel. I'm curious to know what was discussed about reducing fossil fuel use at this forum. Well, I think um, we, you can have the, um, the limits, the emissions, the treaties, but the only way which countries will actually start reducing um, the emissions or the use of fossil fuels is if there's a business case. And there is, it doesn't matter how many laws there are in the world, countries will always look at their best interest and companies will always look at the bottom line. So it then becomes an issue of how do you create the business case for companies to invest in renewable energies. And one of the, and this is not necessarily from my perspective, but the um, one of the big drivers at the moment is how do we reduce the reliance on subsidies or how do we reduce the subsidies on fossil fuels? Because people sort of say there's no money. There's a hell of a lot of money out there because there's trillions of dollars being invested globally in subsidising fossil fuels. And that's just ridiculous given the, the damage that those fossil fuels are doing at the moment. So it's more about trying to be smarter in this transition. Um, there's, there's also a, um, a, like a terminology and sort of about how you um, re 
everyone has got a responsibility, but there's some who have got a greater responsibility. 92% of the world's emissions come from, uh, from the industrialised world. Uh, how do we reduce that quickly? And how do, but also, how do we empower um, Africa, for instance, who really don't have very much emissions? Like, so they, we can't reduce the emissions if, you, if they really don't even have any emissions to begin with. So we need to provide power, energy, empowerment to, to those regions without sort of penalising them. Right. And uh, of course, uh, COP28 is coming up next month. I mean, what, what do you hope to see and maybe in the area of uh, fossil fuel usage? Um, I, don't, I don't know, to tell you the truth. It's, um, this is the 28th um, uh, COP meeting and the 20, previous 27 haven't done very much there. Um, I think, as I mentioned before, it's important that people have the opportunity to talk. Um, I know there's going to be a lot of pressure from developing countries, uh, the G77+, plus, uh, towards the loss and damage fund. But there was um, discussions which took place two weeks ago which failed. Um, that's going to be a key area of, of, um, of contention because it's, it's an issue of do the developed countries pay for the impact of their, of their growth and their development um, to developing countries who are, who are obviously struggling. Um, I hope that there will be significant changes there. We're, we're trying to bring refugees um, to, the, to the forum, to, to the COP process, so that they can actually talk about the situation. The fact that we're getting displacement on the agenda um, is good. We're able to actually to get the Director General of COP28, um, Majid Al Sawedi, uh, the Director General uh, from Abu Dhabi, to go to a refugee camp in uh, in Kenya. First time ever that's, that's, that's occurred where somebody so senior from a COP presidency has seen people who have suffered so much from climate change and conflict. You, you said you're going to bring some refugees to, mm. to this conference. Tell us some of their stories. What, mm. what are these people's stories? Well, uh, one woman, uh, Fatima, who was um, um, I met on the border between Kenya and, and Somalia um, last month, uh, she had been forced from her home due to the fighting with al-Shabaab in, in Somalia. Um, she had five children. Uh, one of them had died en route trying to seek safety. Um, she didn't want to leave Somalia, but there was also then four failed planting seasons. So, so she said she was not going to go back unless there was schools and education. It didn't matter what happened, even if there was peace and security there. And so it's not just conflict. It's not just climate. It's about human security that we've got to be looking at. And where else in the, in the world other than Kenya? What about in Asia? Uh, Asia, well, as I was saying, um, Bangladesh is, um, is particularly concerning, um, mainly because there's no intention for them to return back to Myanmar. And as I watch what's going on in terms of, um, of cyclones, you can, you can believe that every um, Rohingya refugee is also looking across the Bay of Bengal and sort of saying, will our homes resist this next onslaught? Yeah, um, yeah. You, you 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 mentioned earlier about um, that some of the aspirations um, that that came out of the Boal Forum. What are what are what do you think COP should be able to? I mean, you know, you seem pessimistic. But what do you think it should be able to achieve? Well, it should be able to come up with a fund which um, which was agreed at uh, COP twenty seven in terms of loss and damage. Okay. But, but it's no use having a fund if it has no money in it. Okay. Well, thank you very much talking about the very human consequences of climate change.
And uh, that's all from us from Backchat this morning. Um, thank you very much uh, for being with us this morning. Andrew Harper with the UN Refugee Agency um, and a special advisor on climate change.